welcome to Arrows on Air, presented by Tomorrow's Air. I'm Christina Beckman, and this is a show where we meet artists, travelers, and scientists from all over the world to talk about art, travel, and climate action. Hello and welcome. Today, I'm talking with Becky Desjardins. Becky is a senior preparator at the Naturalis Biodiversity Center in the city of Leiden in South Holland, Netherlands. Naturalis won the European Museum of the Year Award in 2021. It's the most prestigious museum award in Europe and sets a benchmark for museums all across Europe. In her work, as you'll hear her describe, she collects scientific information, observations, measurements, all those details that can be hard to process, and opens up a world of questions to answer and possibilities to explore. As Becky shares the details of her work and what discoveries are enabled through it, you might be inspired, as I am, by her particular brand of imagination and passion for science. Typically, when we hear scientific facts or data, I think the reflex reaction is to file it in the corner of our brains dedicated to data and numbers, measurable things versus the part of our brain that likes to float and dream and consider possible outcomes. The conversation with Becky invites all of us to engage more deeply with science, and along with that, also with the multitude of stories that stem from a piece of scientific information. In addition to how did this happen, we can be asking ourselves, what might come next? What are the possible narratives here? Becky and I talk a lot about scientific collections in this conversation, but also some other unexpected things too, like roller derby and frozen birds. I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, Becky Desjardins, how are you today? I'm doing really well, how about you? I am doing great. I was just, um, we were just getting ready for this recording and I was scrolling through the images that you shared, and I'm still recovering. So, so <laughs> let's start with. I think we should start with dead birds in your freezer. You are one of the. You have one of the most unusual jobs of I think anyone that I've had the pleasure to talk to on this show. So, get us started. You have dead birds in your freezer, and that is because. <sighs> Yeah, I have dead birds in my freezer because I work at Naturalis, which is the National Science Museum in the Netherlands, and I work with scientific collections, so I work behind the scenes, and I'm a scientific preparator, and that means that mostly what I do all day long is I take dead animals and I turn them into scientific specimens to go into the scientific collections at Naturalis. Unbelievable. And how, I mean, I guess... It's not so unbelievable. We know that there are scientific collections and we know that there are scientists working on these things. I just never really thought about the mechanics of that job and what <laughs> you're learning. And so one of the things in our earlier conversation, you mentioned that that scientific collections contain specimens from all different points in history. And a specimen might be a dead bird and people including yourself, when you find one, might put it in your freezer and then take it to the museum where where they somehow get flattened and put in drawers. Say, <laughs> say more, because I was looking at an image of a stack of moles, little gray with the little feet sticking out. So these are 
taxidermy i explain please <laughs> okay. to explain the mole the moles are really funny but i'll start i'll actually start a little bit at the beginning of like what is a scientific collection so so basically when you come to visit a museum and it doesn't matter if it's an art museum or a history museum or a science museum what you see in the exhibits is only a small portion of what the museum has so in the case of naturalis um, we have about 8000 animals that are actually on exhibit but in our scientific collection are 42 million specimens and these are things like yeah moles or insects or birds or fossils or shells and these are objects that have been collected. In the case of Naturalis, we're 200 years old, so we've been collecting for 200 years. So you can come, a researcher can come, let's say you are interested in moles. Um, so you can come, and I think we have a lot of moles. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna guess, I don't know for sure, we probably have 600 European moles. Um, and we also have moles from America, we have moles from Africa, any place there are moles, we have some. But if you're a researcher, you can come and look at all these moles and you can say, okay, well, I see that, you know, maybe the, you know, the European mole, the population has spread out or maybe it has shrunk or maybe now they eat more than just worms. Maybe they started eating seeds also. Or, and you can see that by investigating. So you would pull one of these little flattened dead guys out of the tray and like put it under a microscope. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. you can do that. You can look at it under a microscope. You can just look at the different, um, you know, the different colors. You can look at how many are males, how many are females. You can look at juveniles. You can be like, oh, wow, I see like all the moles that we collected in the month of February. They're all really big. And ones we collected in July are all juveniles. Mm -hmm. They're really small. You know, there's you can get DNA out of these specimens still. So, you know, you can it's it's such a huge archive of information. It's really amazing. And that's just moles. <laughs> that's just moles. And so, you know, the obvious kind of place that I jump to this is climate. And so you're able to track, you can track all kinds of environmental impacts, I guess, on. Absolutely. Yeah, for critters. sure. And that's why, like, I always like to tell people that I think museum collections are going to save the world because really we have all the information about how animals and plants and everything has responded to climate change over the last, you know, hundreds of years. So how'd you get into this? <laughs> I don't think anybody or maybe wakes up when they're nine and says, I got it. <laughs> well, it was kind of, um, you know, it's kind of roundabout in a way, but I, I went to school. So I grew up in Boston, moved to North Carolina for school, and I studied geology in school. And I in early on my freshman year, I took this class that was called field techniques and was tag team taught by a biology and a geology professor. And we learned all these different field techniques. We spent our spring break that year on Cumberland Island National Park, and we learned how to take soil samples and count birds in a flock and do all these all these um, different things. And I was like, okay, I don't really know what I want to do when I grow up, but I, I want to work outside. And I decided to major in geology but I took ornithology, which is a study of birds, and I really liked it. And in hindsight, I think I didn't major in biology because I was intimidated by like cell and genetics. Mm. But I can tell you, geology is not necessarily any easier. So I don't know mm -hmm. what that logic mm -hmm. was about. But um, <laughs> after, after I graduated, um, I ran into an old classmate from ornithology. And he said, guess what? I just got back 
from counting hawks that were migrating across the Florida Keys. And I said, I want to do that too. He said, well, you should go talk to our old professor. And she told me how to apply for these field jobs with birds. So I spent the subsequent couple of summers doing field work uh, on, you know, out in the Great Plains and out in Texas. And then I got hired at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences as the, sort of the lowest woman on the ladder. And the way that that museum was structured is that I spent about half of my time continuing to do field work and chasing birds around and seeing what they were doing, you know, observing nests, whatever. But then half of it working with the museum collection, which I'd never seen before. And they taught me how to prepare study skins and, uh, you know, how to take care of a collection. And then when I moved over to the Netherlands uh, in 2010, I was lucky enough to just continue on my career track. But at Naturalis, they were like, well, our, our mammal guy is going to retire. Do you think you could learn how to prepare mammals too? So then I started working on mammals and now I kind of do everything. And so you've been at the museum for, for a while now, 10 years. I like to say years. that, um, yeah, I've been working in museums for uh, over 20 years, which is such a surprise because I look like I'm 30. How did that happen? <laughs> I look like I'm 32. It's incredible. <laughs> Becky, as I'm listening to you, I'm I'm imagining that your work sort of gives you a different perspective on life, right? Like, do you sort of see yourself as part of a, a living continuum, maybe, because you're surrounded by the history so much more? I, I just have this notion that you are wandering throughout the world, seeing things um, more deeply, maybe, <laughs> than the rest of us. Do you think that's true? It is really interesting to see, especially, you know, I in the like in the summertime, I go back to the same place in Maine every year. And it is interesting because even you see even those those kind of changes like, wow, I, you know, I didn't hear this bird this year or I've noticed there are fewer and fewer starfish. You know, what does that mean? But it does really make you, you know, people always you kind of hear in a lot of the lingo about climate change, like we are like the guardians, but you kind of realize that we really are like, we are just like our lifetime is just kind of a small blip in, mm -hmm. in this whole biodiversity, biodiversity thing. And it's, it's mm -hmm. really, it's really amazing. So today at work, I prepared a bird that is called a European nightjar and it's related mm. to the whippoorwill and the chuckwills widow, which are American species. And um, it's a, a nocturnal bird and it, it's kind of like a swallow in that it catches a lot of insects while it's flying mm -hmm. and it, it like has this giant mouth that can just open them and catch them. But what was interesting about this bird, this one died this year in June. One of my coworkers found it. And so I was preparing it. So I basically take the dead bird and I essentially make a stuffed study skin. Um, it's kind of looks like a, a bowling pin basically. And cause it's going to go into a drawer in the collection. But when I'm doing this, I really, I record a ton of data. So I weigh it and I measure it and I take a DNA sample and you know, all these different kinds of things, where was it found, when, what were, what was going on? But what was really fascinating about this bird was that the stomach, um, cause I always look and see what they've been eating. The stomach had insect parts, but it also had um, what I'm pretty sure are the eggs of ants. And I thought, like, I'm well, so that's glad really you didn't say plastic. Oh, no. You were no, say, no, 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 no. bags in its belly, and I was going to be like, no, no, that's that's like a different, that's a different discussion. But we do, you know, museums do some of that, recording that information as well. But mm -hmm. um, it's interesting because this is a bird that 
so I happened to look out and there was a researcher there today and he was telling me that this type of bird, the, the nightjar, they do eat ants, but it's kind mm-hmm. of not their first choice. They would mm-hmm. only eat them if it was like kind of an emergency, if there was nothing mm-hmm. else around. Well, here this year in June, it was freezing. We kind of didn't really have a summer in the Netherlands this year. And oh. I thought, you know, okay, it maybe it's because it was really cold. But also one of the things, one of the huge problems here in Europe is that we've had a huge crash in insects, basically due to intensive farming and lots of pesticides and, and you know, that kind of land management. Wow, Becky, wow. So, so yeah, those are... You know, I'm not sure if I'll ever know, like maybe I could go back and look at the weather and be like, oh, was it because it was freezing and there were no flying insects or because there are fewer and fewer. But the lack of insects here, that's something that has definitely had an impact on on almost everything because that's the, you know, the bottom of the food chain. Right. You know, these observations, it's so interesting how you can read. Like if I came across, say you wrote this as an article and you did all the research and you backed it up. And I came across this article in whatever, Nature Magazine, the Smithsonian, I would kind of like, I don't know, I would thumb right by it, probably be like, yes, more evidence of climate change. But there's something so um, visceral in your experience of it. It reminds me of, you know, like when I was in Antarctica and the being so close to melting ice gave me, it just, you feel it differently, don't you? When you're actually like holding the evidence. I feel like we talk about climate is so, in some ways, so intangible. Like we can't see, I can't see carbon dioxide built up in my atmosphere, yet it's there. Droughts, wildfires, stronger storms, all, like what you described, like fewer insects mean birds are eating ant eggs. In a Absolutely. way, it's like there and not at the same time holding the holding the dead bird with his ant eggs. Yeah, it's so it's really yeah, it's really amazing. It's kind of like you don't. I mean, we all know it's happening, but it's hard to you know. You often yeah, like you in Antarctica, you almost never have that moment where you can actually put your finger on it and say like, this is it. Like here, mm-hmm. here we see it. So what kind of people do you hang out with in the nether? I'm, I'm imagining like a dinner party <laughs> full of like really gently nerdy folks with glasses and collars buttoned all the way up to the top, like talking about their specimens. Are you, the, are you, do you circulate with all the specimen people or do you have a, what, what's it like for you over there? I, I do sometimes. And I do like, because all of my friends know what I do. I, you know, it is not rare that I, if I'm invited to somebody's house for dinner or if somebody comes to my house for dinner, they'll be like, Oh, this bird hit my window. Here you go. And like, you know, like a party favor. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. But, and it's funny. I, I wish, uh, you know, I have to say that most of the people that I work with now, they're, they're a really cool bunch overall and, uh, mm-hmm. and really modern. But for sure, when I feel like when I started out in the museum world, there, there definitely was that um, here in the Netherlands, they call them like wool sock biologists. So uh-huh. these are those like mostly uh-huh. white, gray hair, older guys with the Birkenstocks mm-hmm. and the wool socks. Mm-hmm. And they've spent more time with like their study species and other human beings which can make for some awkward moments. <laughs> right. 
but uh, but no, the the group that I work with actually they're all they're pretty great. A lot of them are are actually like quite. I would put them you know in between thirty and forty, and they're enthusiastic and uh, yeah, we we definitely have a good time. But you know, being an expat, I do hang out with uh, a fair amount of other internationals as well, and it's. You know, I really like the Netherlands. It seems to attract a good group of people. Mm-hmm. There are lots of NGOs based here. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of creatives that I meet. So it's definitely living abroad has been, you know, I can't recommend it enough. It's been really fantastic. I just love it. Mm-hmm. Because you came from Massachusetts and then you moved there. Right. And so but you yeah. think about, I think you told me you ended up there because you were married and you're not married anymore, yeah. but mm-hmm. you didn't decide to come back after that. No. And it was so funny because basically one day my, my Chris, my ex, he came home from work and he said, how would you feel about living in the Netherlands? And I was like, not a super well-traveled person when I was younger. And I'd only been to Europe once. I'd never been to the Netherlands, but I was like, you know what? That sounds really fun. And he was like, well, it's kind of been my dream. My my office has an, uh, they have a new office over there with an opening. And so we went and it's so funny. We really had no idea like how long we would stay or, or you mm-hmm. know, what we we're going to do, but it has just been fabulous. I think one of the things that I really, really like about living over here is that it's, you know, and, and I don't want to like trash the U.S. because mm-hmm. I, I really, you know, there are so many wonderful things about living in the U.S. and of course, wonderful people there and the amazing nature. But for me, the highlight of living here is that uh, it's a fabulous balance between work and life. So mm-hmm. After five o'clock, if somebody emails me, they don't really expect a response until tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And when I'm on holiday, because here we get tons of vacation time, so you can take like a three-week vacation. It's just one of those things where it's like, oh, we just mm-hmm. have to wait till Becky's back. You know, it's it's no big deal. I mean, I do I do joke that, you know, what I work with, it's not, I always say that it's not going to get more dead, but, um, <laughs> but there is like, but in other industries as well, like there's, it's right. just like, okay, she's on holiday and we're not going to bother her. Right. It's such but a no, mindset. Has, I'm yeah. trying to have more of that mindset in my own <laughs> I life. encourage it. So, but, uh, but no, it's been, it's been really great. And Naturalis, it's a, it's a fabulous museum. So this year we won the European Museum of the Year Award, which is actually wow. like a big deal yeah i thought um, all of europe yeah all of europe and when we got it i can't tell a lie i was like is this one of those like who's who and like yeah. european music yeah. you remember those things from, totally. uh, yes. no it's legit we are the you know <laughs> but actually what's almost even more fun for those people who really are interested is that our all of our data is part of a, a few different like metadata websites for mm-hmm. example big one is called GBIF. It stands for Global Biodiversity Information Foundation. And it's gbif.org. And you can go in there and type in, I don't know, ladybug. And you can literally see all the ladybugs at Naturalis, at the Smithsonian, at the Paris Museum, at the, you know, the, the a museum anywhere in the world, everything is right there. And that ends up being a really big data set. And then, you know, then you can really make some big you can really see the big picture of a lot of different things, whether you're looking at taxonomy, the family tree of, of animals, if you're looking at yeah, climate issues, it's all, um, it's all there. It's so much, it's such quantities of information. It makes me feel like the, the need for science communications has never been greater, right? Like people who can 
people who can unpack this and bring it forward in a meaning like the so what around all of this content. Oh, absolutely it's just absolutely but I'll tell you, I will we'll tell you one story right quick about one of my sort of like favorite museum um, or, or uh, use of museum specimens, also birds close to my heart uh, uh, and climate change. And, and so this was a study that was published in 2019 by the Field Museum. The Field Museum is in Chicago and Chicago sits on a migrating bird highway. And especially during the fall, lots and lots of birds hit the tall buildings in Chicago and fall to the ground, basically dead or almost dead. And so since the 1970s, volunteers have been going out and collecting all these birds. And these are, for the most part, songbirds. So think of like warblers and robins and thrushes, like those kind of things. They've made them all into study skins. And two researchers at the museum measured all of these birds, 70,000 study skins. And they basically discovered that Every single species, whether it was like a warbler or a robin or whatever, they are all smaller now than they were in the 70s. Hmm. And it's really, um, and it's basically because of climate warming. Hmm. Because there's a law, there's a biological law where animals that live in colder climates are bigger than animals that live in warmer climates. And it has to do with like how efficiently you use mm-hmm. your body heat. And because it's getting warmer, these birds are getting smaller to use their body heat more efficiently. And uh, but it's a little challenging, of course, because they still have to migrate to Mexico or where South America, wherever they're Mm -hmm. going in the end. But I think Mm -hmm. that was such a cool use of um, of museum specimens. One of the kind of the side effects of this particular study in Chicago is that um, like sort of is that they basically looked at sort of what side of the building these birds were hitting and when hmm. and where. Hmm. And by and now Chicago has what's called a lights out policy, where during hmm. fall migration, people are encouraged to turn the lights off in the buildings. And especially if it's like a commercial building, all the lights need to be off. And uh, that has really helped. A lot, a lot fewer birds are dying. So look you know, at that. So it's a very it's kind practical, of tangible thing <laughs> came out of it. Exactly. So yeah, at night, if you are in a tall building, please turn the lights off. So Becky, I can't help thinking as you're talking about all these um, collections all around the world, it's feeling to me, and they're all accessible online, it's feeling a little bit overwhelming. Like when, when does the collection of information ever stop? And where does it all go? How, how does this play out eventually, right? Like at some point, maybe some things have to get thrown away. Or at some point we decide to stop collecting. What's your thought on this? My old supervisor in America, he used to always say, "Space, it's the final frontier," and he meant regarding museum collections. <laughs> it basically never ends. <laughs> oh my word! And we oh. run it. We actually have run into that now with, with for example, whales. So I'm um. Oh also my on god! The whale team. <laughs> okay. yeah. yeah. Let's talk about this. Yes, please. So I'm also on the whale team because, you know, it also it is a vertebrate. So what happens is when a whale washes up in the Netherlands, uh, we go and we also go with a team of researchers from Utrecht University and uh, we work with them. And then we also there's some folks from another university, um, Wageningen, and we go together. So Utrecht does a whole autopsy on the whale 
they want to know why did it die. They look at the like the liver and the um, you know stomach and the heart, and they take all the stuff back to the lab and they do like a full autopsy. The other group from Wageningen University, they are interested in plastic in the stomach, and they've been doing plastic in the stomach work on seabirds and sea mammals for. Mm. Uh, ages, I think like 20, 25 years or something like that. And and then Naturalis, we're there and we uh, take the bones back to the museum. And because with you can't really mount a whale, um, but you know, you can take the bones. So we'll bring the bones back and eventually they'll it take it's a long process to get them clean, but eventually they will come into the museum collection. And it's it's one of those things where there comes a certain point where we want to save everything. But whales take up a lot of space. And Mm -hmm. so now we always do. We always take a skull. Now we take a skull and we take um, vertebra, like some vertebra from the the atlas. That's the area right behind the skull. And we usually take a flipper, a shoulder blade, and a few other things like a tissue sample. We almost always take an eye just because it's like kind of cool to have. And um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. There's so much seven-year-old boy or girl in this I have a seven-year-old boy so that's what's leaking to the front but really your your job is like a a, a, an expression a grown-up expression of childlike curiosity isn't it Becky I also one thing that we didn't talk about in our prep conversation but that I did find out about you is that you were involved with roller derby (laughs) <laughs> and I think we should yes. I think we're getting an interesting picture of you as a person which by the way I love so what about roller derby in North Carolina this if I'm not mistaken is like racing around a roller rink and you guys wear yes. costumes and it can get kind of like there's a lot of personalities in roller derby for sure. Now, first of all, spoiler alert, I was not a skater, but I was I did a lot of volunteer work for them. So basically, what happened? how did you get into that? So at the time, roller derby was kind of sweeping the nation, as it were. And my roommate, <laughs> <laughs> my roommate. OK, now, first of all, I don't know if you know this, but in roller derby, you always have to have a derby name. You never mm-hmm. use your real name. Mm-hmm. So my roommate, her name is Celia Fate, mm-hmm. and she had found Derby while she was in Texas and was determined to start a team in Raleigh, and and she did. And so because she started it, I felt like roller derby was centered out of our house that we shared. And uh-huh. I had so many friends who joined the team. Um, Car- uh, Kama Suture was uh-huh. one. Um, Shirley Temper was another. Her number was 56, of course. Um, Teflon Donna and Teflon Donna went on to skate for Philadelphia and actually became a professional roller derby. No way. So, so yeah, so basically it was kind of always around and I honestly, I saw how much they practiced and it's such a big time commitment and also how often they got injured. And I was like, I don't know if I want to break some bones, but Mm -hmm. I do think this is really, really cool. And I'd love to be a part of this. And so I, um, I basically started out doing, uh, I did some fundraising volunteer for them. So I'm like going out and trying to like work with clients, like, cause they need a lot of sponsors. So finding new clients and developing these different sponsorship packages. 
And then later on, I ended up also working with statistics. Um, and the woman who was the head of the statistics, like we would watch games and keep track of certain moves and who was doing it. Her name was Miscalculate. <laughs> and uh, so it was Miscalculate and the, I don't know, Miscalculators. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it was really fun. But the funny thing is that that's actually how I met my husband was uh -huh. through roller derby. Uh -huh. And what happened was, you know, I was like all in the roller derby world and, you know, pe people were showing up at the house and skates and all these things. And um, meanwhile, he'd gone to a party and he met a roller girl there and he was like, well, you know, they're like, that girl is uh, like, this might be a place where I can meet like single women. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he encouraged two of his friends. He's like, you guys should join the roller derby team so that I can meet chicks. And that is exactly what happened. We and met at the very first roller derby event. What are you snooping around? What rocks are you overturning <laughs> these days? Well, I do. Okay. So my, the way that naturalis is structured is I no longer get to do field work, but mm -hmm. I do, I still do a lot of bird watching. And for the past few years, I've been helping out the city of Amsterdam is making an, the, the bird group in Amsterdam is making a new city guide mm -hmm. for, to the birds, like to find out what birds are where and how they're breeding and all these things. So I've been doing a lot of birding up there, helping out with that. And, and, uh, and yeah, just, just birding, birding around in general, but mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm totally, I think the thing that I'm really curious about now that I'd love to be like my next, I don't know, hobby, I'm super intrigued by these low tech re-greening things like planting trees and well, okay, a better example. There's a nonprofit here called Just Dig It. And mm -hmm. what they do is they go to sub-Saharan Africa and they have the people there dig, they call them buns, B-U-N-D-S. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a half circle shape in the ground. I'm not really sure how big it is, but it's not super deep. Maybe it's like a meter deep and I don't know, the size of a car. And what happens is during the rainy season, these buns retain just enough moisture that plants can survive through the dry season there. And these are areas that have been overgrazed and kind of abused. And basically in three years, it goes from being a desert to being back to being like a savanna. And I am totally fascinated by this. And I've been reading lots of articles about it. And I read about these like camps where you can go. And I don't think you have to go and like dig a bund in Africa, mm -hmm. but you can like plant trees. And I'm, I'm really interested wow. in this. So I think that's going to be my next, uh, I don't know, my next stone that I turn over. That is a great, um, tell me the name of the, I want, tell me the name of the camp. I think this is, would be something I really think it's fun. Called, I, think, I think it's called like literally something like ecosystem restoration camps. I'll send you the link later. Cause um, I know I have it, but, but it was mm -hmm. the name was pretty simple. And I think that was it. Well, Becky, you, thank you so much for making time. You are very interesting. <laughs> quirky, smart. Um, so good to talk to you. Well, Christina, thank you so much. It really has been a pleasure. 